Spotlight with Sarah Hendy. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Fast am I and welcome along to the programme. Tonight, Wendy Shimon of the One World Centre is here to speak to us about the charity's exciting new art competition and artist and former teacher Ian Coulson shares insights into the inner world of his good friend, artist Kevin Atherton, whose retrospective exhibition is currently on display at the Manx Museum. Now, if you're interested in becoming a more conscious consumer and encouraging others to do the same, this charity art competition could be just the thing to inspire you. Wendy Shimon of the One World Centre is here with us today. Wendy, first of all, tell us what kind of work does the One World Centre do? So the One World Centre is a development education centre. Um, so that means we worry about big global problems like poverty, hunger, equality, um, education, um, topics like that. But rather than just worry about them, we try and come up with a positive response Um, So most of our work is done in schools, but we are branching out now a bit more into the general public and businesses as well. Lovely. And it's always so nice when um, the arts are brought in to like, I think the power of the arts is so strong. How how is this competition going to work? How are you hoping it will engage people? Well, we've run similar competitions in schools in the past. In fact, we used to run a short film competition that the the kids loved. And last year we ran an arts competition, which, of course, was a a little bit difficult uh, given the circumstances. Um, But we thought we'd throw it open to everyone this year. Um, So basically it's um, open to all ages uh, and it's on the theme of being a responsible consumer, which sounds a bit of a tricky subject for an art competition. And and maybe it is. I don't know. But there's a a lot we need to think about when we're um, living our lives these days. We're very fortunate here in the Isle of Man. Uh, We're a relatively wealthy nation. We buy lots of stuff. Um, We buy lots of food. We buy lots of uh, leisure things. I don't know, phones. People buy a phone every other year. Um, uh, It's not quite the same in some other parts of the world. And we also need to think about our impact on the environment. So this competition is um, to sort of draw out some of those themes in a creative way uh, and a fun way. I mean, it's a serious topic, but uh, I think it's something that you can also have a bit of fun with. Um, So we're talking about things like recycling, uh, waste, what you buy in the first place. Did you really need it? Um, things like built-in obsolescence uh, is it worth paying more for something that's going to last longer Uh, so there's lots of topics there um, that people could approach in a creative way we're very happy to talk to anyone the environment the planet it affects us all Uh, nobody is immune from that Uh, at the current rate of consumption I think we're going to need something like three planets um, by 2050 if we carry on the way we are so you know, it is, it is an important issue for everyone. Um, I think people are cottoning onto the message. Obviously, we've got climate change happening as well, which is related. Um, so uh, people are becoming more aware about the choices they make and the things that they do. So this is just another opportunity to get people to think about what they can do. And as you say, this competition is open to everyone. There is an under-18 category and then an over-18 category. Tell us about those two different categories and what you're asking for from each. Yes, so under-18s, we thought we'd keep it 
quite simple. Uh, we're asking for a poster, uh, which can be up to A3 in size. Um, and the idea is that it's a, a, an image is created that we might be able to use um, for a campaign on being a responsible consumer. Um, so that's for the under 18s. Um, over 18s, 18 and over, I guess it is actually, um, uh, are challenged to produce an artwork. And I'm not being prescriptive at all about what that artwork might be. Uh, the only criteria is that I need to be able to carry it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it could be any kind of creative response. Um, and again, the hope is that we'll be able to use it to illustrate uh, a future campaign on being a responsible consumer. Uh, but again, it's drawing out those topics and it, this, these could be at a very local level, what we can do here on the Isle of Man or an issue that we have here on the Isle of Man or it can bring in some of those big global themes as well um, about you know who is making your stuff, um, are they being paid a fair wage, all those kind of elements as well. So there's lots of different angles that you could approach this on. And of course, what you use as well could be... An interesting concept. And this is a lovely this is a lovely competition to be part of anyway, but there are prizes up for grabs. Tell us a little bit about them. Yep, so the overall winner in each category will uh, have a receive a prize of sustainably produced art materials to the value of £100. And there may be other prizes as well uh, as we go along, um, but they will all uh, be on a sustainable theme. So the purpose of this is to raise awareness and promote positive action around Goal 12. Tell us, what is that and what, what does that mean to us here on the Isle of Man? Yeah, so I don't know how familiar people are with the Sustainable Development Goals, but there are 17 goals that were set in 2015 by 193 nations at the UN. Um, and they uh, cover all aspects of our lives. Uh, there's things like no hunger, uh, no poverty, gender equality, um, life on earth, life in the seas. Uh, and it's all about making the world a more sustainable and fairer place as well. So although these targets apply to every country, obviously some countries are a bit further behind in some elements uh, than others. Um, so the idea is that we bring everyone forward and everybody enjoys the same lifestyles, equal opportunities by 2030. So goal 12 is responsible consumption and production. So that's the one we're focusing on for this competition. Um, and the, there's lots of resources on our website if anybody wants to research that a bit further. And there's a really fantastic website called The World's Largest Lesson, which is all about the UN uh, sustainable Development Goals and there's loads of resources on there, particularly uh, for younger uh, artists as well. Uh, lots of great videos and bits and pieces for them to learn about these goals. Uh, but yeah, number 12 is the one that we're focusing on for this competition. The closing date for entries is the 23rd of July and for information on how to submit your creations, visit the One World Centre website or Facebook page. Spotlight. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. We're now joined by artist and former teacher Ian Coulson. He joins me now to talk about Kevin Atherton's retrospective art exhibition, The Works. Unfortunately, it was affected by the last lockdown, but it's now on display at the Manx Museum. Ian, you and Kevin studied under Norman Sale together at the Old Art School on Kensington Road, I believe. So you must go back a long way. Yeah, if you go into the main gallery in the museum, you can see us both pose, posing in a photograph of long ago with Martin Hearn. 
Martin's the good-looking one. <laughs> Kevin described us as rock and roll flaneurs. <laughs> the flaneurs are sort of literary type from 19th century France, and the word carries a set of rich associations. The man of leisure, the idler, the urban explorer, the connoisseur of the street, Strand Street. So perhaps on the island we might be considered to be Stravagas, or as we as art students might have said, Strand Streeters. I like that. It's a good phrase you coined there. And um, you did your foundation course together here on the island with Norman Sale, I believe. But then you went away to study. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We went off to art school in the UK. Kevin went to Leeds, me to Loughborough and Mick Duckworth to Brighton at the same time. And we spent the next three years really connected at weekends by the great river of the M1. (laughs) Hitchhiking was universal. All students did it. All squaddies did it. I can still feel the damp cold and my bones have been stranded for hours near Sheffield when Kevin and I were trying to hitch to Leeds for a Ted Hughes reading. Oh my goodness. Um, It sounds as though you and Kevin and Mick were really firm friends then. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. If you look at pages 72 and 73 of the exhibition catalogue, it shows the artist's forearms. Kevin, Mick and I went into a non-too-clean tattooist shop in Leicester in 1969 to get three legs tattoos. You know, the mark of Manx male virility from time immemorial. Kevin was first, Mick was second, and the drawing wasn't getting any better. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't put up with someone else's indifferent drawing on my arm for the rest of my life. It has to be said, though, that Kevin's has aged in wonderfully well and taken together with his signature on the other forearm. It said a lot about identity and origin at a time when only seamen and jailbirds were tattooed. Yeah, I think you must be right. And um, it's... It's interesting that Kevin sees his everyday actions as a 19-year-old capable of becoming subject matter for making art. Well, yeah, because Kevin was at the forefront of several enduring facets of contemporary British art, particularly in performance art, where the artists use their body as a direct engagement with the audience, often in challenging and unexpected ways and when just about anything could happen, perhaps because of the sort of ephemeral immaterial nature of performance Kevin was amongst the first two to use the emerging technologies and I mean emerging you know it was it was utterly brand new of a video to, and he made sort of performance films I imagine all art students would have had cameras at that kind of time wouldn't they so what was what was so different about what the teenage Atherton was doing Yeah, and at the time I already had access to a pretty flashy Super 8 movie camera and I remember a conversation with Kevin when he asked my advice as to which one he should buy. Now, my interest in making films of the world, I suppose, related to the cinematic or to painting, for instance. I loved the saturated colours of Kodachrome film. Kevin didn't want any of this. His parameters were simple. He wanted black and white. He wanted standard eight. He wanted fixed focus. You switched it on or off. You stick it on a tripod and it's cheap. He didn't want a box of photographic trickery. He wanted a real-time recording device. I see what you're saying. So he didn't want that seductive imagery. He didn't want anything to detract from the idea or concept of the film. Yeah, Kevin was already dealing with time and space amongst his main materials. And as I say, he was into performance, whereas I would run a mile rather than be the subject of my work. 
I still hold to the idea that any artwork that I make didn't need me there at all. The work should stand entirely for itself. Even now I rarely sign anything. Occasionally I'm asked, did you do this, Coulson? So Kevin was experimenting with the potential of performance art. He was creating liminal spaces in which anything could happen. It was challenging and it was edgy and I found some of the outcomes often really unsettling. In the works and the book of the exhibition, there's a photograph of a naked performance that he did at Butler's Wharf in London. So it may have been from that, but I think it was in Germany that one of Kevin's naked performances was actually featured in Studio International. And that was like the Bible of contemporary art criticism that avidly read by all of us. And, and Kevin was coming home on the boat and by um, uh, by chance he met Norman Sale in the sea terminal. He was there meeting somebody else. And in this characteristic, uh, ribald manner, Norman pipes up to the shocked ears of those assembled. Oh, hello, Kevin. I didn't recognise you with your clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> Cheeky rascal. <laughs> so anyway, um, after my sculpture degree, I spent a year in Leeds doing a postgrad art teaching qualification. Kevin must periodically have still been there. I can't remember now. But what I do remember vividly is coming across a section of dirty old red brick wall in a back lane in which every brick had been cancelled with a bright, sharp, white chalk cross. It was amazingly visually arresting, and it was so fresh within the context of its drab surroundings that I, I was sort of startled by it, and I filed it away in my head as something to use myself one day. A couple of years later, I think, and Kevin showed us some of his 8mm films, and there was a three-minute film of Kevin drawing chalk crosses on a wall. Oh my God, no way. That must have been a, a big surprise, almost like meeting an old friend, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, a real light went on in my head. And here's the philosophical conundrum. He thought that he'd taken the art away with him in his camera as a performance. And happening along just after he must have packed up and with his camera and gone, I thought that he'd left the art there on the wall. The making of the art was the subject of the film, but I'd already loved this as an art thing, whilst he'd loved it as an art process. Gosh, that's fascinating. And looking in the catalogue for the exhibition, you can see that Kevin Atherton has made work in a wide variety of materials. I see stained glass church windows hanging in a forest, and I see traditional bronze figurative sculpture, quite diverse. Yeah. Kevin likes to celebrate real people, like commuters, and like school children, and he does this with the high art materials and the monumentality, more often reserved for kings or emperors on horseback. You'll see in the works, the book designed for the museum show, a sculpture of a Londoner, a lady called Joy Battick, patiently waiting for her train to come into the platform at Brixton Station in South London. The sculpture of Joy, which has waited on the platform edge with two other of Kevin's bronze commuters for 30 years. Uh, and they've recently been given listed status because of their importance to black history. Two of them are thought to be the first public sculptural representation of black British people in the UK. Gosh, that's remarkable. So this is recognised as a significant historical work then? Yeah, yeah. But I don't think that it even occurred to Kevin when he was working on this commission that he was about to reveal the gaping omission of centuries of black British people whose very existence in Britain is denied or overlooked by the blindness of our recorded history. 
a reminder that racism is very deeply ingrained in our culture. Yeah, uh, and in a delicious piece of near synchronicity, we had the toppling of Edward Colston's statue in Brit- into Bristol Harbour. The historian who lives in Bristol, um, the wonderful David Olashoga, wrote the, in the Guardian. For people who don't know Bristol, the real shock when they heard that the statue of a 17th century slave trader had been torn from its plinth and thrown into the harbour was that 21st century Bristol still had a statue of a slave trader on public view. In January this year, Oliver Dowden, the Secretary for Digital Media, Culture and Sport, has introduced protection through planning law to stop the removal of contentious statues in this way. Uh, Yeah. Um, I very much like uh, Anthony Gormley's clever suggestion that the statue of the colonialist and white supremacist Cecil Rhodes should be turned to face the wall of Oriel College in shame. (laughs) Edward Colston, the man in question, helped to oversee the transportation into slavery of an estimated 84,000 Africans. Of them, it's believed that Around 19,000 died in the stagnant bellies of the company's slave ships. The bodies of the dead were thrown overboard where they were devoured by the sharks, which over the centuries of the Atlantic slave trade had learned to seek out slave ships and follow their bloody paths across the ocean. This is mass murder here. This is the man who for 125 years has been honoured by Bristol, put literally on a pedestal in the very heart of the city. The historical symmetry of this moment of his toppling is poetic. A bronze effigy of an infamous and prolific slave trader is dragged through the streets of the city, built on the wealth of that trade and then dumped, like the victims of the Middle Passage, into the water. Now that's an art happening of some significance, in which mere statuary achieves the status of art through liminal performance. I think that Kevin and I are both on board with that one. The news photograph published the next day of a young black woman, triumphant and proud, standing on Colston's plinth in his place, was an art moment of consummation for me. Yeah, it was a really beautiful moment. And um, it's worth saying that alongside his international profile as a practising fine artist, he has had a rather illustrious teaching career, hasn't he? Kevin has held posts at the Slade, which is arguably the best art school in the world, and at the Royal College. Perhaps most notably, he was head of the Department of Alternative Media at Chelsea College of Art. And when he moved to Dublin in 1999, Kevin became the inaugural head of the Fine Art Media Department at the National College of Art and Design of Ireland. It's really quite something. Yeah, it's interesting when I remember how very challenging he was as an art student. I was a course tutor for many years of the foundation course that gave birth to both of us, but I don't think I came across any students as belligerently intelligent as Kevin. He was the first artist that I knew who was prepared to start a pub fight over the form and the content of artworks. This is important stuff. I never thought to separate the two. I suppose that I imagined that the ideas embodied in the sculpture were intrinsic in its shape and materials and the processes of its making. That was how I worked, and I didn't feel any desire to expose or to analyse the mysterious nature of the art object. Um, Something really interesting. Um, We find 
an illuminating description of Kevin in 1969, uh, which appears in a book called Creative License by James Charnley. He was a fellow student of Kevin's, wasn't he? And he observes the early photographs of Kevin Atherton at Leeds show him as a slight, long-haired youth, essentially central casting standard model for a student in 1969. His appearance was to undergo a drastic change, however, reflecting his development as an artist. He shaved off all of his hair and took to walking around in a polo neck and loose trousers, a look in almost direct opposition to the prevailing fashion. I love that quote, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as an aside though, Kevin, Mick and I all wore fisherman's gansies. Um, uh, but Kevin also adopted these heavy woolen seaman's trousers. This was the rig that his grandfather, Johnny Clegg, who was a boatman, wore. Indeed, most men on Douglas Key at that time would have been similarly attired. I think as much as anything, Kevin was defining himself as a Manx artist. He was othering himself in Leeds through the way that he dressed. Yes, and if we go back to Charnley, um, he says, this confrontational pose was reinforced by the regular and loud use of the phrase F off to cover most occasions. He became quite unstoppable since this belligerence was supported by a loquacious intelligence and caustic observations, all delivered in a broad Manx accent. Kevin did nothing to hide his working class roots, and if anything, he emphasised them. He operated in a proto punk idiom, an ideal model for negotiating the tougher aspects of life in Leeds. You know, <laughs> I remember at this time, Kevin had a rubber stamp made, which said in capital letters, irrelevant. <laughs> and he was quite prepared to stamp library books, notices on the course board, and indeed other students' work. Unforgivable. I wonder how many customers as difficult as he, as he has been himself, Kevin came across in his teaching career. I've heard him say, though, that he was taken aback when he got to Leeds to find that the majority of his studio mates were not really committed to their futures as artists, whereas he was absolutely determined to make his mark. Now... In this exhibition, there are complex multi-screen presentations which utilise earlier video work that the young, assertive Atherton has made and with which the older artist, again to camera, interacts. You think that this is a significant outcome in contemporary art, don't you, Ian? Can you, t- can you tell us why? Well, yeah, I do. Yeah, I think that, that it's a wonderful, humane expression of a man's creative life that he can interact with his younger self across a life's time span. We see the older Atherton, knocked about and shaped by life's reverses in many ways, faces younger self across a dark room and 30 years of his own personal history. In The Peace in Two Minds, the older Atherton takes this vivid, vehement iteration of his younger self. And from the wisdom of his years... The mature artist has a spirited conversation with his adolescent self by way of video installation. It's interesting, isn't it, that only with the advent of time-based recording, this thing that has fascinated Atherton all of his life, is it possible for a man to appear to talk to his younger self? Yeah, it's exciting. The mature artist holds all the cards, of course. The young artist has no idea that this is going to happen to him down the road. The old, the old guy knows what the young man's going to say and life's experiences have given him a thousand shades of riposte to the young man's certainties. And, you know, it's in the kindness of the older Atherton, 
cutting slack for his younger self, that we are all of us absolved of our own follies of adolescence, and I know I've got plenty of them. <laughs> um, and there's a there's a very interesting and involved essay in the works written in Art Speak, critically dealing with this piece, making detailed observations and parallels with other great works, isn't there? Yeah. Um, but I'm deeply resistant to jargon. And for me, it's in the humanity of the self-appraisal that it reminds me of nothing more than the late self-portraits of Rembrandt. Aged, alone, broke, and perhaps even a bit addled in the brain, yet supremely communicative of the human spirit. I can almost feel Atherton in sympathy with Rembrandt musing, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. <laughs> Thank you so much to Ian for such an enlightening conversation. Kevin Atherton's retrospective exhibition entitled The Works continues at the Manx Museum. Join me again next Wednesday at 6 when we'll be talking about the periodic table, believe it or not. We're catching up with local chemist and illustrator Max Tate. Till next Wednesday, have a lovely creative week. Slen you. <laughs>